This is an Oxford Review members-only research briefing podcast. Welcome back. Today, I've got Jan Lazar. Can you just give us a short introduction about who you are and what you do, Jan? Of course. First of all, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to speaking with you, David. So about me, I live with my wife and two sons, Paul Jonathan and Louis Theodore in the city of Hamburg. We enjoy doing sports or going for walks together. I studied social economics at Hamburg University, then my master's in HR management. And finally, I completed my doctorate in the Garrett University in Magdeburg on personal career planning. Currently, I work as a HR business partner in a large passenger and transport company here in Germany. I'm also involved in research with a focus on human resource management. To make my ideas accessible and because I like trying new things, I've started a YouTube channel. I didn't know about that. I'll get the link off you when we finish and I'll put it into the show notes. That's brilliant. Right. So the reason that I've reached out to you and contacted you is that you recently published a paper in the Journal of Organization, People and Performance that's entitled Criteria to Appraise Top Executives for Ambidextrous Leadership. Can I just ask you, what is it that prompted you to do the study? I first became interested in ambidextrous leadership in 2018. I read about the fundamentals of ambidextrous management and leadership, but I didn't find much about what what actually defines an ambidextrous executive. At that time, a lot was written about using, opening and closing leadership with implications that this would translate into leadership, but it didn't get much more concrete than that. So that's why I decided to put myself in the shoes of decision-maker and ask how this decision-maker might appraise the top executive's suitability for ambidextrous And that led me to more specific ideas, such as which criteria I would use for that kind of appraisal. My idea was to give a more to the appraisal process than just saying you need to use opening and closing leadership style. I thought other people in the field might be interested in that too. So I wrote the paper. Before we get into the paper, which we will do in a minute, one of the other reasons that I reached out to you is that usually when I'm talking to people who've published papers, I'm talking to academics and they're based in university. And I'm intrigued because I'm sure many of our listeners will be interested to know about getting papers published in academic journals when you're not an academic in a university and that you're a HR practitioner, which I found intriguing. Can you talk us through about that, please? My biggest issue is time. Such papers require a lot of time, really a lot of time. Whenever I have time early in the morning or late in the evening, I work on my research. I would also add that you need to have a thick skin, as you will always have some negative feedback from reviewers. But don't worry, that's just part of the process. Yeah, and how difficult did you find getting an article published in a peer-reviewed journal? That's not so difficult because if you have got a good topic, and that's not a big problem. Perhaps the biggest problem is that I'm more a theoretical analytical culture and the most journals empirical stuff. But if you have got the right topic, it's not so a big problem. Okay, great. And so what advice would you give to anybody who isn't an academic but wants to publish some research? I would say if you don't have a mentor, you find a mentor. I did that too. First, I was an employee at the university and had a mentor there, Peter Conrad. Then I also had my mentor of many years, my doctoral supervisor, Thomas Spengler, from the university in work. And later, I went to Sven Hall University, who also gave me a lot of good advice, advice, including about the paper we're discussing today. So again, find a mentor. That's good advice. Okay, let's just go back to the paper then. First, I just want to clear something up. Can you just explain what you mean by organizational dexterity, please, Jan? Take one approach, which I think is the best noun. We can refer to the terms exploration and exploitation. According to this approach, they should make the 
best possible use of its resources, which would be exploitation, while also breaking into new markets, for example, through innovation, which would be exploration. A good example of exploration is Amazon's branching into many other market areas after glitching the original online store. An often cited example of the lack of security that you may now have the opportunity to invest in Netflix in 2000, but didn't end and filed for bankruptcy in 2010. So, Station aims to create a sustainable place in a changing market. I suppose facing two ways, isn't it? It's dealing with the now and keeping the business going with the existing resources and exploiting the existing resources and markets that you've got now, but also, as you say, trying to find new markets, but also innovating both the business model, innovating products and services and things like that. Part of that issue, so if you've got an organization, there's an awful lot of research in this space around One of the issues that comes up is how do you go about leading an ambidextrous organization? And this is what you've been writing about. I'm interested in how would you define what, what is an ambidextrous leader? Yeah, David, this is where it really gets interesting for me. To begin with the definition, I originally found an ambidextrous leader. So I personally prefer to speak of an ambidextrous executive. I'll explain why in a moment. It's someone who performs both opening and closing leadership and can switch between the two as needed. With opening leadership at the boss, you increase variance in employee behavior. For example, when a company like Google encourages its engineers to spend up to 20% of the time on projects they have chosen themselves, that is an example of opening leadership, which is good because you're generating new ideas. Closing leadership, on the other hand, means that variance in employees' behavior is reduced through rules and compliance and so on, which is good for exploitation because you increase efficiency. That provided a good starting point for my research, which I expanded on in my paper with the aim of making the assessment process for executive era and more specific to opening and closing leadership. I added the rules of leader and manager and transaction and informational styles of leadership because Relates exist between these concepts. Opening leadership, transformational leadership, and the leadership role itself are all helpful in promoting exploration. And in the same exploitation is promoted by closing leadership, the management role, and transactional leadership. So in the ambidextrous exec role, all of these things work together. I added the leader and manager role to make it clear that an ambidextrous executive is not defined only by the extent to which he or she ambidextrously lead, but also that the mindset of an ambidextrous executive is different. For example, if a top executive practices opening and closing leadership but doesn't fulfill the leadership role, it could happen that all preaching innovation, the exec doesn't allocate the resources needed to promote innovation. So an ambidextrous executive is not only characterized by action, it simply involves directing the behavior of employee. Okay, was a long version in short. By ambidextrous top executive, I mean someone who personally promotes both exploration, exploitation, risk, leadership and management, transactional and transformational, as well as opening and closing leadership. But that's not quite it. One important point is missing, which is that you have to switch flexibly between these areas as and when needed. So I know it's a lot of requirements. One more point, David. One more point. Sorry. Let me keep my promise and explain why I prefer to talk about an ambidextrous executive rather than an ambidextrous leader. If you use the term ambidextrous leader, you can ask why not an ambidextrous manager? Because both roles are important to ambidextrous leadership, which also includes management. And that's the reason I use the term for exec. We could go a step further and ask ourselves whether we can then speak of ambidextrous leadership or whether we should also make a linguistic adjustment 
investment. Yeah, but that would be stretching the idea a bit far, perhaps. And I don't want to go off on a tangent. Yeah, and I think that's actually a wise distinction, largely because there's an awful lot of research within the organizational ambidexterity that shows that usually people aren't great at doing both things. In the early days of some of the work around organizational ambidexterity, what they were trying to do was to make all of the people within the organization ambid. But what the research has shown is that tends not to work. People aren't great at doing both sides. Usually what we find is that they've got strengths in one area, exploitation, or in the other area to do with exploration. And it's at the senior levels being able to strategically operate in an ambidextrous way to be able to, as you say, promote these things that becomes critical. And just moving on that is why are ambidextrous executives so critical to organization? Even at the result of the actions of the people who act in it. So if those people tend towards management or exploitation, then you will get the corresponding result, which can have catastrophic effects, as with our opening example from Black Blockbuster. That's the general picture. If we are talking about the leader, then leader is key to the company's success. The leader has authority to distribute resources and also influences employee behavior. We can imagine what might happen if an executive is not valued at the highest level, meaning no balance between exploration and exploitation even except in that case, you might be very innovative exploration, but not adequately exploiting resources. Or on the other hand, you fully exploit resources, exploitation, but don't notice when the market is leaving you behind. For example, you might make the best cassettes ever, but who wants them? Yeah, that's true. So what the paper was looking at was the criteria for ambidextrous executives, which is critical, especially when you're doing recruiting and things, but also for development purposes as well. So what did you find in terms of what the criteria criteria are for dexterous leaders or executives. Okay, David, your previous question about what defines an ambidextrous executive is relevant here because we said that an ambidextrous executive is someone who promotes both exploration and exploitation with leadership and management skills, transactional and transformational styles, and opening and closing leaders. In making these connections, we can use well-known concepts and the career contained within them for executives. These well-known concepts would be the role of leader or manager and transactional and transformational leadership for the position of an ambidextrous top executive at all times, providing full confidence in that person's ability to respond flexibly in a changing demanding market. The relevance of the criteria in the leadership concept can vary over time. Fourthly, it becomes clear that you are looking for a generalist rather than special. The fifth point, it's important for me too, because we can divide the criteria into categories. For category one, I use the heading one-dimensional criteria, which include criteria such as intelligence, being a team player, and creativity. In this category, criteria are only judged on the extent to which they are met or not. There's no differentiation between exploration and exploitation because it wouldn't make any sense to say that a person is intelligent in exploitation but not in exploration. Okay. The situation is different with the criteria and category which I call multidimensional criteria. Qualities such as courage and ambition fall into this category. Here I looked at the extent of courage in different approaches. 
Because being courageous as a leader is different to being courageous as a manager. These criteria should also be differentiated in relation to first and second order change. Lower executives are not responsible for organization that is dramatic and transformative, but rather for incremental critical change, which can be defined as first order change. Second order change involves things like investment decisions affecting the whole organization, involving risks the CEO or the top management team are responsible for. Lower executives are required to be courageous regarding first order change as when negotiating implementation of first order change, addressing any resistance from employees and on. And executives are required to be courageous regarding second order changes. Lower executives and top executives therefore need to be courageous within the bound of their role. So we can say that the rewards of lower executive and CEO involve different orders of the criteria courage, meaning that in the second category, we have the same criteria, but different usage. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So how can organizations use these criteria then? First of all, when selecting or appraising it, it's important to ensure that the appraising criteria are aligned with the content of a specific area or role. Otherwise, criteria could be too abstract for the source. Assessors should know how to apply the criteria in concrete terms. It's important to differentiate between exploration for example, but only resus makes it wouldn't make sense to say the criterion of intelligence doesn't matter in a given role. For example, on the other hand, the criteria of my paper can be checked in the company to see if they should be included in the evaluation process and how they might be used in application, as just mentioned. This criteria can be used in recruiting, accession planning, development, or possibly the bonus system. And do you think that things like recruiting, HR, learning and things can be doing things to help to foster and promote greater levels of organizational dexterity with an organization then. Yeah. I think so. So recruitment, of course, can ensure that employees are hired to promote and organization. Talent management can ensure that the concept of ambidextrous leadership is that in assessment and feedback systems and in training and coaching. I also see a need for talent management when an executive changes from the middle to the top level. Because a previous experience in management and leadership for personal changes can no longer be used to the extent they were before. Because at the top level, they are especially responsible for or the changes, which calls for other skills and therefore close support from HR. Promotion and dexterity could be anchored as a bonus system. For example, when at least 10 to 20% of annuals are generated from product services that have been on the market for no longer than five years, top execs get bonuses. Bearing in mind that corporate culture is difficult to change, HR might consider consulting to create independent startups, which could be set up with access to the parent company sources, but not the other way around. They can develop freely and are not influenced by the old mindset or bureaucratic regulations. Another point is to differentiate which tasks must be completed by the CEO. We can ask if an ambidextrous top executive has to fulfill all leaders, all the criteria, or could the company hire a top exec strong in exploration and leadership who can then share the exploitation and management tasks with the top management team. That's still leading dexterously, but indirectly as well. Interesting. Okay. Thanks, Ayan. I really appreciate this. How can people contact you or connect with you? David, first of all, thank you. And you can find me on or on my homepage, www.plump.com. Great. I'll add links to the show notes. This has been brilliant. Thank you, Ayan. I really appreciate your time. It's a really important topic that I haven't actually seen very much research around considering, as you say, that executive level and the criteria for both choosing the executives 
and for helping to develop them, particularly around the development of organizational ambidexterity. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. This is David Wilkinson from the Oxford Review, and this has been a members-only podcast. You will find a link to the research briefing and the references in the show notes for this podcast.